This is GM Word of the Week, and I'm Fiddleback. Socks. Good morning, dear, dear listener. If you're listening to this on its release date and you're inclined to celebrate the holiday, Merry Christmas. Are you surprised to find that we jolly old word elves have left you a Christmas present in your podcast app? Well, let's open it up and you can see what Santa Angry and Santa Fiddleback have left for you. Let's see, what is it? Oh, hmm. Not bigger than the bread box. Doesn't rattle. Let's see here. Oh, <laughs> here, here it is. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's socks. Now, the word socks dates back to the 14th century. And in old English, what? What's wrong? Are you, are, are you disappointed? Well, first of all, dear listener, let us remind you that it is the thought that counts. And we didn't need to get you anything for Christmas. But we also think you are underestimating this poor, oft-maligned Christmas gift. Apart from keeping your toes warm, socks have played a major role in human history. They've been instrumental in the forging of great empires. They've won wars. They've insulted queens. They've been at the forefront of intellectual and philosophical movements. They've spurred rebellions. They even delayed the Industrial Revolution. And quite frankly, there have been people throughout history who would have given practically anything to have their mother send them a nice pair of socks. Seriously, 2,000 years ago, people were writing letters home to Mommy asking for pairs of socks. We still have the letters. Now, if you'll wipe that scowl off your face and let us continue, we'd hate to have to send you to your room to think about showing a little gratitude. That's better. The word sock dates back to the 14th century. It comes from an old English word, sock, which sounds the same but is spelled S-O-C-C, and it means slipper or light shoe. There's also a similar Germanic word, sock, which sounds the same but is spelled S-O-C-K-E, and they both seem to come from a Latin word, socus, meaning slipper or light shoe. Okay, okay, the etymology is boring. When do we get to spurned queens, empires, and 2,000-year-old letters to mommy? Fine. Let's go back to the very first socks. The oldest intact pair of socks we've discovered in the archaeological record in the Western world came from Coptic Egypt and date back to the 4th or 5th century CE. Now, Coptic Egypt refers to a particular Christian community in Egypt that was founded during the reign of the Roman Emperor Claudius. The Copts got their start in Alexandria with the arrival of St. Mark the Evangelist. You know the book of Mark in the Bible? The Gospel of Mark? Yep, that's the Mark we're talking about. At least as far as anyone has been able to determine. There is some scholarly debate about whether a couple of different Marks were being conflated. It turns out Jesus knew a lot of guys named Mark. And there were at least three Marks among the 70 people who Jesus sent forth to spread his word from Judea. But... This isn't really about the Marks, the Coptic Church, or Jesus. 
This is about socks. Anyway, Mark went to Alexandria in northern Egypt after the whole Jesus thing and started evangelizing there. And Christianity caught on first. This is about 20 years after the death and resurrection of Christ, if you're keeping score, in 49 CE. And the faith spread pretty rapidly and grew into a sect of Christianity all its own, the Coptic Church. And it also became the first Christian church in Africa and became the seat of Christianity across all of Africa. But none of that has anything to do with the socks. The socks were made of knitted wool, and they are a tragic shade of bright orange. And the toes are divided. You can find pictures of them online. They're pretty awful. But they are probably the most famous pair of historical socks in existence. And they tell us something very interesting. Two very interesting things, really. First, given that Egypt is not known for being damp or cold and given the bright colors, they were worn for fashion, not form. And second, they were made to be worn with sandals. Oldest pair of socks still in existence were garish socks worn with sandals. Now, aren't you sorry you made fun of Grandpa? But we digress. See, the thing was that socks were actually becoming popular in the Roman Empire, a group of people famous for their love of sandals and their lack of pants. And they were designed to be worn with sandals. And that was for a very particular reason. It was to protect soldiers' feet when they started tromping north from Rome and started going through some very damp, marshy, cold areas. And we know how important socks were to the Romans for a number of reasons. First, because we have unearthed archaeological remains of Roman sandals with bits of preserved fiber from socks stuck in them. And second, because of documents like the Vindolanda letters, which seem to contain the oldest written references to socks in Western history. Recall from previous episodes that around the 1st century BCE and into the 1st century CE, the Roman Empire invaded and occupied the hell out of Britain. And they did it for a number of reasons. They did it to gain access to mineral and agricultural resources. They did it to drive the Gauls out of Europe so they couldn't regroup and counterattack. They did it so generals could further their careers by taking new territory. And they did it so at least one emperor with a tenuous grasp on his claim to the throne and a famous weak will could drum up some public support. Doesn't really matter. The point is, they invaded the British Isles and occupied Britain right up to a line which they called Hadrian's Wall because they'd built a wall on it while Hadrian was emperor. Simple, see? Beyond the wall was a bunch of barbarians who called themselves free people and winter zombies and stuff. Oh wait, that's a different wall built by an invading empire to divide north from south. Sorry. <laughs> well, the Romans had a lot of forts in Britain, especially along the wall. And one such fort was Vindolanda. Now at the time, paper wasn't really available. So the Romans had this practice of using laminae for short written communication. Laminae, also called sectiles or leaf tablets, were thin slivers of spruce or larch wood. They were about four inches by six, so they were about the size of a modern postcard. And they were smoothed carefully so they would take writing. And they were scored down the middle so that they could be folded and tied together for security. Several of them could be tied together like a spiral notebook or a binder of loose leaf paper. See? This is where we get that idea. 
Now, we've found all sorts of preserved laminae, but never so much in one place as the pile we've found at Vindolanda. And these 1300 or so letters, also called the Vindolanda Tablets, were written between 85 and 130 CE. And they really were mostly letters. Many of them were personal letters, and that made them fascinating because they were a glimpse into the life and times of Roman soldiers stationed in foreign lands. Oh, sure, some of them were official correspondences with troop reports and supply numbers and stuff like that, which was also really useful historical information. But many of them were just personal letters to and from friends and family. One was sent to accompany a gift of some free oysters the writer had gotten from a friend. Another started as a passive-aggressive reminder that the writer was in fact still alive and in good health, and then crosses into just plain actual aggressive, when it ends to the tune of, which you'd know if you ever wrote me a letter, you jerk. Well, you know, basically, we're paraphrasing. There's even a few recipes in there. And of course, there's a letter written from a mother to her soldier's son that was included with a gift of new socks, sandals, and some treats for him and his friends. Seriously, we're not making that up. But we don't want to trivialize how important socks were. Without socks under their sandals, the Roman Empire never would have spread across northern and western Europe. And frankly, that means modern Europe would never have existed. Why? Because wet feet can kill you. Let's talk about immersion foot syndrome. You know that if your feet get wet for too long, they get wrinkly and pruney, right? Now, interestingly, the exact mechanism by which this happens is actually still up for debate. But we do know a few things. For one thing, we know it isn't caused by the dead cells in the outer layer of your skin absorbing water and swelling. Yes, that's the standard explanation a Google search will turn up. But it's wrong. It's a myth. If it were true, all skin would wrinkle equally in water which doesn't happen. And if it were true, the volume of your fingers and toes would increase, not decrease when wrinkled. And they don't. And if it were true, nerve damage wouldn't stop the wrinkling process, which it does. There's actually a physiological mechanism for hands and feet wrinkling in water, and we aren't quite sure what it is or why it happens. It seems to come from the nervous system, but we don't know precisely how. But we do know that the immersion causes the blood vessels in your fingers and toes to constrict. That's what ultimately causes the wrinkling. And if it goes on for too long, it causes the blood vessels to actually get damaged. They can only constrict for so long. And once the blood vessels start going, things get really ugly really fast. Literally. Without blood flow, the tissues in your feet start to die. As nerves die, feet go numb. As the rest of the tissue dies, it starts to rot. It stinks and turns red, then blue, then black. Blisters and open sores appear. And without blood flow, they become prone to fungal or bacterial infection. And eventually, the affected bit of you dies. And it has to be cut off because the rotting and infection won't stop. It'll spread into your blood, 
That's basically sepsis. Eventually, if allowed to go on, you die. Now, socks don't keep your feet from getting wet. But changing your socks periodically helps your feet dry before all this horribleness sets in. So if you're tromping around through damp, chilly conditions, you need a good supply of dry socks. And if the Romans didn't have a supply of dry socks, they never would have spread across Europe. They'd have had huge casualties. How do we know? Because tens of thousands of soldiers literally did die of immersion foot syndrome during World War I across Europe. It came from standing for hours in military trenches that had very poor drainage and a shortage of clean, dry socks. That's why immersion foot syndrome is also called trench foot. When the Americans joined the First World War in April of 1917 and joined the British, French, and other soldiers in the trenches of Europe, they too faced an immediate problem with trench foot. The problem was that the thick-soled cowhide boots with iron heels and hobnails that the American soldiers were wearing weren't quite as water-repellent as was hoped. Water could infiltrate the seams between the sole and the boot easily, and the iron nails and heels conducted cold directly into the boot. And even the development of improved boots didn't help. Soldiers' feet were cold, wet, and confined, and they didn't have enough warm socks to mediate the problem. And so it was, in the summer of 1917, that a group of 6,000 American Red Cross volunteers started working round the clock, knitting for Sammy. That's what they called it. American soldiers were called Sammies after Uncle Sam. And knit for Sammy, they did. They knitted wool caps and vests, fingerless gloves to allow trigger access, stump covers for amputated limbs, and, of course, socks. And it kind of took off. Soon, everyone was doing it. Red Cross knitters across the country took up the call. And so did churches, women's knitting clubs, and school organizations. Non-knitters were urged to purchase yarn and donate it to knitters. The Junior Red Cross started teaching knitting and holding yarn donation drives. The wife of the Japanese consul in Seattle started the Japanese Ladies Auxiliary of the Red Cross and began knitting. An African-American women's club called the Self-Improvement Club in Seattle formed Just to Knit for Sammy. And such knitting programs continued for the entire 18 months that the Americans were engaged in the war. Right up until November of 1918 when Germany surrendered and the war was over. So you see, socks save lives. And there have been thousands of people throughout history who would have loved to have those socks you're turning your nose up at. Especially a hand-knitted pair. Now, socks evolved into stockings and then hose through the Middle Ages. Basically, the tights you always see people wearing at Renaissance fairs, and which were central to the song and dance number in Mel Brooks's classic send-up Robin Hood Men in Tights? Yeah, those grew out of socks. Socks got longer, expanded up the leg, and eventually became pants. Except that the sock part of the pants got dirtier than the pants part, and wore out more quickly. So while it was popular during the early medieval period for pants and socks to basically be one garment, that quickly fell out of favor among men who separated their breeches from their hose. 
and they were all still basically hand-knitted. Because of course they were, the Industrial Revolution hadn't happened yet. But thanks to socks, it did try to happen. Rather bloodily, we might add. The story starts in around 1589 with an English inventor and clergyman named William Lee. Now the story, which may be apocryphal, goes that William Lee had his eye on a particular girl. But his attempts to court her kept failing because she was obsessed with knitting. At the very least, we're guessing, whenever Lee came around, she would always become fully absorbed in her knitting and mumble something about being busy knitting to avoid the conversation. Instead of picking up on her signals, Lee obviously decided that what she needed was something to speed her knitting along so she wasn't so busy all the time. And so he invented the first ever knitting machine, the stocking frame knitting machine. His first machine included eight needles and could produce a coarse fabric pretty quickly. Deciding he had something important, Lee decided to show off his machine to Queen Elizabeth I of England, seek a patent, and start a knitting company. Well, Queen Elizabeth I, from whose name we get the word Elizabethan, she took her fashion pretty seriously, and her favorite stockings were hand-knitted silk stockings imported from Spain. So when Lee handed her a stocking knitted off his machine with its coarse knitting work, she was unimpressed and denied the patent. Undeterred, Lee and his assistant improved the machine, adding an additional mechanism and upping the needle count to 20, they were finally able to produce fine silk stockings. So Lee went back to Queen Elizabeth and sought a patent and business charter again. And Elizabeth examined the stocking and had to admit it was pretty good. And then she said, But I don't want to put a bunch of knitters out of business with this contraption, so still no, sorry. So Lee took his machine to France, and he briefly got the support of Henry IV, King of France, to start his business. But it didn't really catch on, and lots of knitters were still protesting being replaced by a machine. And then Henry IV was assassinated. That was in 1610, and Lee's barely surviving business dropped off even further. And then Lee died, and Lee's brother went back to England and started a frame knitting business there, despite the protests of the knitting industry. And the business continued to struggle for many years to come. But that wasn't the last time that frame knitting business owners had to deal with the protestations of hand knitters. See, Lee learned that the world wasn't quite ready for the Industrial Revolution and it would be 200 years before it really took off. And one wonders if it might have come a little sooner if Queen Elizabeth hadn't taken her socks and sock knitters so seriously. But come, it eventually did, and the hand knitters put up a heck of a fight when it did. Oh, and Queen Elizabeth really did take her socks seriously. They had to be silk. They had to be white. That was only proper. And she was so famous for it that Mary, Queen of Scots, is said to have worn blue stockings at her own execution, just despite the famous fashion-obsessed queen who had ordered her death. Have you ever heard the term Luddite? Nowadays, it's the blanket term for anyone opposed to technological advancement and modernization. But have you ever wondered where the term came from? 
Well, the name came from a particular movement which was named after a particular person who knitted socks and other garments for a living. If he lived at all. Because he might not technically have existed. See, starting in 1811, when automated looms and frame knitting machines had finally caught on and were now spreading throughout the textile industry in England, there was a sudden mysterious rash of machine breakdowns caused by large sledgehammers wielded by embittered weavers and knitters. A complete and total mystery, as you can see. Captured vandals in Nottingham, England claimed to have been operating under the orders of General Ludd. Thus, they were the Luddites. But who was General Ludd? Well, he wasn't a general. According to rumor, General Ludd was actually a guy named Ned Ludd. Apparently, he had been the first textile worker, he was an apprentice, to get fed up with the new machines and break one in protest. Except, there's no record that Ned Ludd ever existed, and the whole story might be made up. What wasn't made up was the Luddite movement. The Luddites were hoping that their vandalism would lead to the wholesale banning of the offending machines to preserve their jobs. But it didn't quite work out that way. Especially when they escalated their tactics to include burning down factories and getting into gunfights with company guards. Instead, once people were getting hurt and fires were spreading, the British government called in the military to quash the movement and they made destroying the machines a capital offense. In April of 1812, in Huddersfield, England, there was a major standoff at a mill between Luddites and soldiers, and numerous Luddites were gunned down. In the days that followed, the army was able to arrest many of the remaining dissidents. Some were hanged. Others were exiled to Australia. And by 1813, the Luddite movement had ceased to exist. Though the word remains a popular one. Speaking of social movements having to do with socks, let us briefly mention the Blue Stockings of the Blue Stockings Society. Yes, those are technically two different things. One grew out of the other. The story starts with the fact that in the 1700s, working-class individuals tended to wear stockings made of undyed wool. The wool had a sort of grayish-blue color to it. This was opposed to dyed stockings of black, which were considered formal attire. And the term blue stocking thus meant someone who looked frumpy or shabby, or someone who looked poor. But when a well-educated social matron named Elizabeth Vesey invited the famed naturalist Benjamin Stillingfleet to speak at an event and the intellectual declined because he had nothing proper to wear, Vesey famously told him that any old casual dress was fine. He could come in his blue stockings for all she cared. And he did. Soon thereafter, Vessie became part of the core group of well-educated women who would have dinner parties with intellectuals and book clubs and other events despite the fact that women of the time, the early to mid-1700s, weren't supposed to participate in education and own property and read books. And they named themselves the Blue Stocking Society to drive the point home. They weren't fashionable society ladies. They were smart and frumpy, like good old Stillingfleet. So you see, socks aren't just about keeping your feet warm. They are a matter of intellectual freedom, 
a matter of progress, a matter of standing up for what you believe in. They are a way to thumb your nose at authority, and they may even be a matter of life and death. So the next time you open a pair of socks on Christmas morning, try to show a little gratitude. Remember, a Roman soldier 2,000 years ago wasn't ashamed to ask his mommy for some socks. This has been GM Word of the Week. It's written and researched by the Angry GM and produced by me, Fiddleback. You can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash gmwordoftheweek. You can find more at gmwordoftheweek.com and theangrygm.com. Thank you.